What is going on, sports fans, and welcome into Season 5, Episode 4 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. We've got a lot to get to on this week's show, starting off with Super Bowl 57 is set. We recap how the Chiefs and the Eagles won their championship games and give you a little bit of talk about the Super Bowls. We're going to have a full Super Bowl preview for next week's episode, but we do recap the AFC and NFC Championship. I'll give my thoughts on both of those games and much, much more in the NFL. We also talk the NBA as the all-star teams. The all-star starters have been announced. I will also tell you who I think deserves the nod to fill out the rest of the all-star rosters before they are announced tonight. And we also cover things in college basketball, a little bit of a way-too-early preview for March Madness, who I think some teams to watch out for are there, and much, much more. So we've got a lot to get to, but first, as always, this episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Creation tools, editing tools, everything you need to make your very own podcast right from your phone or computer. So if you have any interest at all in podcasting, making your own podcast, you need to go online to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started today. Today is Tuesday, January 31st. Let's go. Welcome in to Season 5, Episode 4 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. I'm your host with the most too sweet to be sour at the top of the hour. On a Tuesday, January 31st, it's your man Jack Bernie. Here to recap everything happening in the world of sports, starting with the AFC and NFC Championship. We start in the city of brotherly love where the Eagles welcomed in the 49ers to Lincoln Financial Field in Philly. This game couldn't have started off better for the Eagles as they drove it right down the field on the opening drive as Jalen Hurts found Devontae Smith who made a nice one-handed catch to set up a Miles Sanders touchdown run. And then for the 49ers, it went from bad to worse as Brocky Balboa, Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, completely tore his UCL on their first drive of the game, fumbling and giving the Eagles another possession, which they would go down and score to make it 14 to nothing. And Brock Purdy would miss the remainder of the game as Josh Johnson would come in as he went 7-13 for 74 yards before he got a concussion as well. 
and the 49ers were forced to put Christian McCaffrey in at quarterback in the Wildcat late in the game. McCaffrey did run for a touchdown pass to briefly get the 49ers back into the game, but the Eagles would fly from there. As Miles Sanders ran for two touchdowns, Jalen Hurts ran for one, and Boston Scott ran for one, as the Eagles just dominated the game up front and did whatever they wanted to on the ground. Meanwhile, for the 49ers, it's another good season, but they need to figure out what their answer is at quarterback. Are they going to turn back to Brock Purdy? Are they going to turn back to Trey Lance? Both of them seem injured, but one thing's clear. With Kyle Shanahan and the talent on this roster, the 49ers can bring pretty much anybody in and still be competitive. They still do need a quarterback to get back into the Super Bowl as the Eagles fly 31-7. to We go to Kansas City at Burrowhead Stadium where the Bengals took on the Chiefs. And this game started off good for Kansas City and was eerily similar to last season's game between these two in the AFC Championship. As the Chiefs race out to a 6-0 lead before Patrick Mahomes found old reliable Travis Kelsey for a touchdown to make the score 13-3. The Bengals would respond with a lengthy field goal drive before halftime as Joe Burrow found T. Higgins early in the third quarter to tie the score at 13. The two teams traded touchdowns and it was tied 20-20 late in the fourth. Burrow had two chances to win the game. He threw an interception and got sacked. And Mahomes, helped by a late hit penalty out of bounds, drove his team down and Harrison Butker kicked a field goal as the Chiefs beat the Bengals 23-20. The AFC and NFC championships are in the books. That was the fastest five minutes in football presented by Anchor. What a game this was. Um, we're going to start with the Kansas City-Cincinnati game because I've got a lot more thoughts on that game than the Philadelphia-San Francisco game, which was just a complete blowout. But that it was such a great battle back and forth between two of the best players, two of the best quarterbacks in the sport as Mahomes and Burrow went back and forth. And it was it was a game until the very end as Harrison Butker would send the Chiefs to the Super Bowl. And here's what it sounded like on CBS, if we can get the call up here. It would be Jim Nance and Tony Romo on this call. As let's see if Twitter wants to work here. So it's it's um, some behind-the-scenes podcasting. All right, there we go. It is working. So here's the call. Here's how it sounded on CBS Sports as it was Jim Nance and Tony Romo as Harrison Bucker sent the Chiefs to their third Super Bowl in the last four years. From 45 yards. All the way. It's good. Cincinnati with an unbelievable season. Ten straight wins. That was Jim Nance, Tony Romo. Is the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20. And this game had it all. It was a great game. Obviously, it's always a great game when Mahomes and Burrow get together. But I think the Bengals, their fans, Cincinnati Mayor too, gave the Chiefs a little bit too much bulletin board material before this game. And the Chiefs are such a great team. Patrick Mahomes is such a great quarterback that – they don't get to be the underdog often. 
But when they get the opportunity, they will thrive off that role. Wanted to play you two Tra- Travis Kelsey clips after the game. Here's the first one when he got interviewed by Tracy Wolfson. Um, Mahomes was getting interviewed by Tracy Wolfson after the game on CBS, and Travis Kelsey comes in and has some words. Take a listen. Travis Kelsey, uh, the pride of Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Burrowhead, my ass. This is Mahomes' house. And Kelsey wasn't done keeping the receipts. As I mentioned that Cincinnati mayor, we will get to him in a minute. Here's what Travis Kelsey had to say about the Cincinnati mayor after the Chiefs won the game against the Bengals. Hey, I got some wise words for that Cincinnati mayor. Know your role and shut your mouth, you jabroni. So, Travis Kelsey, know your role and shut your mouth uh, to the Cincinnati mayor, and rightfully so. I mean, the Cincinnati mayor got what was coming to him, and a lot of people loved the Bengals in this game, especially after they beat the Bills. A lot of people were saying that Burrow had passed Mahomes. They'd rather have Burrow than Mahomes. Burrow is the greatest quarterback in the league. That Mahomes and Burrow is the new Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady, but Joe Burrow was Tom Brady because... Patrick Mahomes could never win the big one. A whole lot of stuff was being said that I didn't really um, understand. But here's what the Cincinnati mayor had to say before the game. Um, He made a proclamation. I'll read you guys the proclamation. This was on Friday, January 27th. Here's what the proclamation read. From the city of Cincinnati. Be it proclaimed. Whereas the Cincinnati Bengals are headed to Burrowhead Stadium for their second consecutive AFC Championship game. And whereas at last year's game, the Bengals scored more points than the Chiefs, resulting in a Bengals victory and a Chiefs loss. And whereas Joseph Lee Burrow, who's 3-0 against Mahomes, has been asked by officials to take a paternity test confirming whether or not he's his father. And whereas all season long, Cincinnati has been on a path of destiny fighting it out to overcome anyone who stands between them and a Super Bowl win. And whereas Kansas City is named after its neighboring state, which is, you know, just kind of weird. Now, therefore, I, Mayor of Cincinnati, dear, do hereby proclaim January 29, 2023, as they got to play us day in Cincinnati. So just taking shot after shot at Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs and... You know, the sayings go, you know, don't write checks that uh, you can't cash. Don't write checks that you can't cash. Uh, don't poke the bear. Um, don't add fuel to the fire. And that's exactly what pretty much everybody around the Bengals did this week. And everybody, a lot of national media did too. They were crowning Joe Burrow after beating the Bills. And, you know, Burrow was 3-0 versus Mahomes before this week, but the, the, the talk that was going around saying Patrick Mahomes can't win the big one was frankly really ridiculous. Mahomes has won a Super Bowl. He's been the AFC Championship every year he's been in the NFL. He's been to two Super Bowls. He, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. But the Bengals fans, 
And I know there are some who listen to the show, and I'm very appreciative of those Cincinnati fans who do listen to the show, but blaming the refs is a bad look. So these Cincinnati fans are convinced that the NFL is rigged, convinced that, you know, Roger Goodell and the league wanted Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl, and they're convinced that the referees cost the Bengals this game. And there are a couple instances they point to. The first one being... Or late, late in that third, maybe even middle of the fourth quarter, there was a third and nine for the Chiefs. Mahomes threw like a four or five-yard pass to Kelsey. The Chiefs were going to punt. An official at the far end of the field, so like if you're watching on TV, the top left of your screen, he runs in, stops the play. The officials confer. They said, you know, this play got ran. We didn't see the play. We didn't hear the whistle. So we're going to let the Chiefs redo the play. And the Bengals fans, the Bengals players, Zach Taylor, they were pissed that the Chiefs got to redo this play, essentially have a free third down. They run the play. They stop him again, but Eli Apple is holding a receiver. Automatic first down for the Chiefs. Oh, the NFL is rigged. The NFL is rigged. I got Bengals fans I follow on social media posting this on their Instagram. That drive, the Chiefs didn't score. They punted. So why the heck does it matter? Why does that drive matter so much? It doesn't. If the Chiefs didn't score, how can you say the NFL is rigged off that play? There were some other instances, you know, they thought Burrow got roughed on a pass late in the game. They thought there was a holding on that Mahomes first down run where... You know, Mahomes got pushed out of bounds by Joseph Asai and got the 15-yard penalty that set up the game-winning kick. Uh, they thought there was an illegal block in the back on Sky Moore's punt return, which was a turn to the 50-yard line on the drive that Mahomes and the Chiefs drove down to kick the game-winning field goal. But do they fail to realize that in this same game, the Chiefs had a touchdown taking away, taken away Early in the game, when they would have went up 10-0 instead of 6-0 due to a pretty wishy-washy holding call, uh, the Chiefs had an interception taken off the board in this game due to a bang-bang pass interference call. So if the refs and the league were trying to rig this game in favor of the Chiefs, they did a pretty bad job since they were you know, calling questionable calls both ways. But the Bengals fans can complain about the refs all they want. But the fact of the matter is, you couldn't run the ball. Your leading rusher was Joe Burrow, who ran it four times for 30 yards. Joe Mixon had 2.3 yards per carry. You couldn't run the ball. Um, Joe Burrow, once again, back-to-back years, in the Super Bowl, had multiple chances with the ball, late in the game, tied. Couldn't get it done. This year, like I said, Two chances in the fourth quarter. Tie game, 20 to 20. First drive, Burrow tries to go deep, is intercepted. Second drive, gets sacked on a crucial third down. They give the ball back to the Chiefs. And the Chiefs win the game on a field goal. Joe Burrow didn't show up in the big moment again, just like he didn't in the Super Bowl last year. And I'm not taking anything away from Joe Burrow. I think he's a great quarterback. I think he's a top two, top three guy in the league. 
But let's pump the brakes on saying he's better than Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes, in Mahomes is consistently at the end of the games when he needs to be clutch. He is. Three times in his playoff career, Patrick Mahomes has gotten the ball with less than a minute left in regulation down and tied the game with a field goal, gotten his team down. He's done that time and time again. He's won a Super Bowl. He's been there three times. He has never not been to the AFC Championship game. Joe Burrow is great, but Patrick Mahomes is Superman. All right? I don't want to hear any of this Burrowhead Stadium, any of that stuff anymore. All right? The Chiefs won this game. The refs didn't win it. But the Bengals have a lot. I mean, the, I feel like Zach Taylor also got out coached a little bit by Andy Reid. But the Bengals had every opportunity in the world to win this game, especially considering Patrick Mahomes was playing on one ankle and he outplayed Joe Burrow. Um, the Chiefs also couldn't run the football as Isaiah Pacheco, their leading runner, had 26 yards and averaged 2.6 yards per carry. But, and the receiving core was injured. Um, Miko Hardman was hurt. Kadarius Toney got hurt. Juju Smith-Schuster got hurt as well. They had Travis Kelsey who was dealing with back spasms. And really the guy that stepped up big time was Marquez Valdez-Scantling for the Chiefs. The Chiefs win this game 23-20. You know, they they shut the Bengals up a little bit. Um, Bengals, I feel like, you know, got a little cocky after last year. And, you know, the Burrowhead Stadium stuff. You know, Eli Apple's victory parade after beating the Bills last week on Twitter. I feel like the Bengals need to learn how to be humble. And I feel like the only, one of the only guys in the Bengals who was humble after last week's win was Joe Burrow. Because he understands it. He knows that Mahomes is great. And he knows that the great ones don't need any extra motivation. And if you give them extra motivation, it usually doesn't work out in your favor. But the Chiefs win 23-20. to They send the Bengals home. And the Bengals have the same amount of Super Bowl rings as you and I sitting here on our couches. You listening to this podcast, me recording this podcast. We have the same Super Bowl rings as Cincinnati Bengals franchise. But congratulations to the Bengals on losing last year's Super Bowl and finishing second this year in the AFC. All right, let's get to the NFC Championship. Talk about that game a little bit. Um, This game was not as entertaining at all. Um, And it was really hard because the Eagles got off to a good start. They, They drove down the field, like I said, seven... 7-0 right off the bat. Jalen Hurts threw a deep ball to Devontae Smith on a fourth down. He made a one-handed catch. Upon replay review, it looked like it may not have been a catch, but they didn't review it. Um, And then the Eagles would go down and score. And then Brock Purdy, very next drive, winds up to throw, gets hit in the arm. He tears his UCL, and he's out. So they bring in journeyman quarterback Josh Johnson, who's played for 13 NFL teams, been a career backup, in his career, he gets his first ever playoff action, and they just couldn't move the ball. They had one drive that they did move the ball. I believe it was 7 nothing. I might have misspoken the, the open, the fastest five minutes. I might have said it was 14-7 Eagles. It was actually 7-7, seven to seven, 
after McCafferty's touchdown run. And then uh, the Eagles went down and scored. As I think it was a Sanders touchdown again. That was with about a minute left before halftime. And then Josh Johnson fumbled a snap inside the 20. The Eagles got the ball. They scored again. And right there, it went from 7-7 seven to seven with a minute 36 left in the first half to 21-7 uh, to seven at halftime. So that was a big swing right there. The Eagles were just the better team. Uh, they, they did a lot better defensively. Um, the 49ers couldn't move the ball. I mean, Josh Johnson wasn't moving the ball. He goes out with a concussion. They try to bring Brock Purdy back in with the torn UCL. He couldn't throw. So at the end of the game, like I said, they had to try Christian McCaffrey in the Wildcat a couple of times. I mean, the 49ers, they were already on their third quarterback, Mr. Irrelevant, seventh-round pick. Then they went to their fourth quarterback, and then they were on their emergency quarterback. So I can't really blame the 49ers for this loss, and I feel like this game could have played out a little bit differently if Brock Purdy was fully healthy the whole time because uh, if you follow the podcast on Instagram at Joe Sports Pod, I did get the winner of both these games right. I picked the Eagles to win 21-17. I saw it being a little bit closer, assuming that Brock Purdy was healthy. Obviously, it was 31-7, so I was 10 points off both ways for both teams. But... um, the other game, I did. I had 30-28 Chiefs. I anticipated a last-second field goal, but I expected it to be a little bit high, more high-scoring. But I think it would have been a lot more competitive if Brock Purdy had been healthy. But, you know, the 49ers, they were banged up. I mean, Nick Boza got banged up. So did Fred Warner in this game. And the Eagles just were more – they were healthier. They have a better offensive line. The offensive line was able to dominate up front, dominate the trenches – the defense was able to make life difficult on the fourth and fifth quarterbacks for the Niners. And the Niners just couldn't move the ball with their, with, you know, Christian McCaffrey playing quarterback. Whenever your, your fourth string quarterback gets hurt and he was in the game, that's not a good spot to be in for any team. But the Eagles win 31 to 7. Um, it, su- it sucks for 49ers fans. I know you're probably thinking how different this game could have been if Brock Purdy could have played. But the Eagles get a big-time win, and they set up this Super Bowl between the Eagles and the Chiefs. And, you know, good for Jalen Hurts. Um, I didn't expect Jalen Hurts to be this good coming out of college. You know, obviously, we all remember he started at Alabama. He gets them to the national championship game his true freshman year. They lose to Deshaun Watson and Clemson. He comes back, gets them to the national championship game again. They're struggling against Georgia, and Nick Saban pulls the plug and inserts Tua Tungaviola for Jalen Hurts. And then Tua wins that game against Georgia in the national championship, starts the next year, but then Jalen Hurts actually replaces an injured Tua in that SEC championship, leads, excuse me, leads Alabama to an SEC championship victory coming in off the bench. And then he transfers to Oklahoma for his senior year. Jalen Hurts has an outstanding senior season. Heisman finalist gets Oklahoma into the playoffs. Gets drafted in the second round by Philly. Sits behind Carson Wentz a year. Last year they get to the playoffs, go nine and eight, but get absolutely, um, you know, demolished by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Tampa. Come back this year, year two under Nick Sirianni, they get a big time receiver in AJ Brown. Um, 
and they go 14-3 and in the regular season and have one of their best seasons ever. And Jalen Hurts, um, MVP finalist, Offensive Player of the Year finalist, seems like he's going to get a pretty big extension here in the next couple weeks as well. So what a, what a journey for Jalen Hurts, you know, from getting benched at Alabama to starting in the Super Bowl. And it sets up a Super Bowl with some fantastic storylines. First off, I was glad that the a- NFC and AFC Championship, despite the 49ers getting beat 31-7, to it was clearly the four best teams in football this season in the respective championship games. And I love when that works itself out. It was also the Eagles and the Chiefs, I think, were the regular season throughout the entire season the two best teams in football. So I'm happy that they're playing in the Super Bowl for that reason as well. Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, it's the first ever Super Bowl with two black starting quarterbacks. So that's pretty cool. You know, that's really awesome to see, actually. You know, two black starting quarterbacks for the first time in Super Bowl history. That's an awesome storyline. Another awesome storyline is it's the Andy Reid Bowl. As you know, obviously, Andy Reid coached the Eagles for a long time. Got them to a Super Bowl. Could never win it in Philly. Gets let go, goes to Kansas City, wins a Super Bowl there. And now Andy Reid is coaching against his old team in the Super Bowl. And perhaps my favorite Super Bowl storyline is it's the Kelsey Bowl. Jason Kelsey, the center for the Eagles. Travis Kelsey, the tight end for the Chiefs. Both from Cleveland Heights, Ohio. First time a pair of brothers have ever faced off against each other in the Super Bowl as players, as we all remember the Harbaugh Bowl a couple years ago. So it's going to be an entertaining Super Bowl. Right now, I want to give you guys a little look at the matchup. As I'm not going to dive too much into it because we are going to have a Super Bowl preview next week. Hoping we can get on Chauncey um, next week for our Super Bowl preview. Or something like that. It's always fun talking football with Chauncey. Those episodes seem to do well with the listeners as well. So I think I'll reach out to him. Try to get him on for our Super Bowl preview episode next week. Probably Monday or Tuesday. So be on the lookout for that. But just give you guys a quick you know, update on the line here for the Super Bowl game. It's opening right now at... I'm getting Eagles minus one and a half. And after watching the championship games. Especially with the question marks surrounding the Chiefs. Especially with their receivers. I said, I think the Eagles should be favored in this game. I think it's the right thing that they are. They're favored by one and a half. Over under right now is 49 and a half with the Chiefs at plus 100 on the money line. Um, I could see either team winning this game. Um, if I'm being honest with you. The first read I have for this game is I think the Eagles are a better overall football team. But I think... Mahomes is the best quarterback in football. So, you know, a lot of times the team with the better quarterback wins in the, in the playoffs. But I think the Eagles, top to bottom, are a better football team. I'd probably say the Chiefs have an edge at a couple positions. You know, obviously quarterback and tight end. Um, they probably have the best defensive player in Chris Jones in this matchup. But I think the Eagles have a better overall defense. I'll give the Chiefs a slight coaching advantage with Andy Reid over Nick Sirianni as well. But, you know, these teams do match up really well on both sides of the football. I just think the Eagles, top to bottom, are more healthy. 
and I think they have a more complete football team. So, but like I said, the Chiefs do have some advantages of their own. So I'm excited to dive deeper into this matchup next week on next week's show for our Super Bowl preview. But the Chiefs win 23-20 to over the Bengals. And the Eagles win 31-7 to over the 49ers to set up Super Bowl 57 in Arizona on February 12th. And we will have a preview episode of that next week. All right, we are going to take a quick break when we come back. NBA, college hoops, and much, much more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors and Anchor. Before we get to part two of the episode, some breaking news that happened actually after I recorded and posted the episode. So this is why it's kind of, you know, like a a segue segment after the ad. But Sean Payton will be the next head coach of the Denver Broncos. According to sources, the deal is done. Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport both reporting that Adam, uh, that uh, not Adam Schefter, Sean Payton, obviously a Super Bowl winning head coach, will be going to Denver to be the new head coach of the Denver Broncos. Obviously, Russell Wilson signed there this offseason, signed to a mega contract worth $165 million guaranteed. And the, the Saints in return are getting a 2023 first round pick and a 2024 Early round pick for the services of Sean Payton. Obviously, new ownership in Denver. They swung big for the fences. Um, Trading for Russell Wilson. They believe that trading for Russell Wilson made them a Super Bowl contender. And obviously, in year one under Nathaniel Hackett, who many people believe they hired to entice Aaron Rodgers to sign in Denver, did not work. The Broncos had a horrible year, finished last in the AFC West. Um, and the Seahawks had their first-round pick. So, obviously, just a disaster in year one under Denver, but there's new ownership. Uh, the family that owns Walmart actually now owns the Denver Broncos. The The biggest purchase of an NFL team ever, I believe, for $4 billion. So, a lot of pressure on the new ownership, on John Elway, to build a winner in Denver. Their first big move was trading for Russell Wilson, signing him to a long-term extension with worth a lot of guaranteed money. Their second big move that they hope can propel them to a Super Bowl contention window is bringing in Sean Payton, the former coach of the Saints. He will be the next head coach of the Denver Broncos for a 2023 first and a early 2024 pick. So this is big uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously, Russell Wilson didn't have a great year this year, but many believe he still has the potential to be an elite quarterback. And that that is that that is why they made this move. Sean Payton had a lot of success in New Orleans, won a Super Bowl with Drew Brees, similar player to Russell Wilson, similar in skill set, similar in size. So he's had success with a quarterback of that caliber. That defense was way too talented this year to finish with the record they did. So they're good on defense. They have the quarterback they got to build some pieces around on offense. I like Jerry Judy. I like some of their other pieces on offense. Can they get Javante Williams healthy and back to playing at the level he was near the back half of 2021? That remains to be seen. But the Broncos have their coach. They have their guy. It is Sean Payton. He will be the next head coach of the Denver Broncos. Now here is part two of the episode. And welcome back to season five, episode four of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. 
NBA and college basketball coming up. Did want to talk a little bit more NFL as the NFL awards um, is coming up. And since I wanted to make next week a Super Bowl preview pretty much exclusively, I want to talk a little bit NFL awards talk and who I think is going to win those awards. Also, some quick NFL news and notes that I forgot to bring up. Um, the Panthers hire um, former Colts head coach Frank Reich as their new head coach as he will take over the Panthers team that went 6-11 and this year but did compete in the NFC South, actually, um, and had some uh, positive momentum at the end of the season there. So they bring in Frank Reich, who, um, you know, never had – he made the playoffs twice in Indianapolis, one year with Andrew Luck, one year uh, with Phillip Rivers, but they never had that true answer at quarterback in Indianapolis. And they don't, I'm pretty sure, have one in Carolina either, so I feel like that's – Objective number one is to figure out what they're going to do at quarterback in Carolina. But Frank Reich is their guy, so that's all good there. No other news and notes in head coaching news, but one note in coordinator news that I really found interesting. Um, Did we talk about the Browns and Jim Schwartz on this? I don't think we did. Um, Before we get to the coordinator news, the Browns hired Jim Schwartz as their defensive coordinator. I don't think we talked about that. I really like the hire. Um, every time Jim Schwartz has been a coordinator, he's had a defensive tackle um, become a pro bowler, all pro. So I really hope that that is a sign of things to come for the Browns. Um, he has experience. He's been a defensive coordinator on a Super Bowl winning team with the Eagles in 2017. Um, players like playing for him. He has ties to the Browns. He said all the right things in the press conference. Um so I think it's the right hire for the Browns. They got their guy defensive coordinator-wise. Now it's time to fix the defense, bring in some pieces to surround around Miles Garrett, around Denzel Ward to make this Browns defense a top 10 to 15 unit, which I think it should be based off some of the personnel they have. Got to get more linebackers, got to get more defensive tackle help. But Jim Schwartz, he's good. He has head coaching experience. He has experience in Cleveland back in 95. Um when he was on Bill Belichick's staff as a scout. And um, I think it'll be a good fit for the Browns. So I like to hire Jim Schwartz. Very, very good. And seems like a lot of the fans do too. It seems like a lot of the players do as well. He's had success everywhere he's been defensively. And I think that's a a very good sign because that's the number one need for the Browns this offseason is to fix that defense. All right, the other coordinator news I wanted to talk about was the Chargers. Um, the Chargers have signed Kellen Moore as their offensive coordinator. Kellen Moore, for the past four years, had been the offensive coordinator in Dallas under Jason Garrett and Mike McCarthy. And three out of the four years in Dallas, the Cowboys had a top 10 offense. And now he goes to L.A. to pair with Brandon Staley who I ripped on after their playoff loss to the Charger, no, no, to the Jaguars, excuse me, a couple weeks ago. Um, I said, look, Brandon Staley, your defensive coach, you need to find your identity offensively. I think Kellen Moore can help do that. He's a good coach. Um, He has had a lot of success. He's a young, you know, former quarterback, and I think pairing him with Justin Herbert not only allows you, allows Brandon Staley some comfort and allows him to, you know, kind of take a step back and let Kellen Moore run his offense, 
But Kellen Moore is also a viable head coaching option. I think if Brandon Staley were to struggle next season, you could put Kellen Moore in that head position. So I really like the move um, for the Chargers hiring Kellen Moore. Not really sure I like the Cowboys firing him and making Mike McCarthy their play caller. Seems like that was just a little bit of a uh, making someone the scapegoat move. All right, NFL awards. So I'm just going to go award by award, tell you who I think is going to win. Um, AP Most Valuable Player, the finalists were Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, Justin Jefferson, and Patrick Mahomes. I think it should be Mahomes. I see a case for Hurts and for um, Justin Jefferson better than Allen and Burrow, but I think it's Mahomes. If you're going based strictly off wins, it's Hurts because the Eagles went 15-1 and when he started, but that's a flawed way to look at it. Mahomes was better than anyone else at quarterback in 2022, and he was the best player in the league. Um, he led the league in passing yards and passing touchdowns. He led the league in QBR and expected points added, and they were the number one seed in the AFC. They're going back to the Super Bowl. I know it's a, reg- a regular season award, but um, without Tyreek Hill, uh, the Chiefs won 14 games. Um, Holmes statistically probably had the best season of his career and he is the reason they remain a powerhouse in the AFC. It was the year Mahomes cemented himself as the face of the league. So I think he should be the MVP defensive player of the year. Uh, the three finalists are Nick Boza, Chris Jones, and Micah Parsons. If we were basing this off the playoffs, I would give it to Chris Jones, but since it's a regular season award, I think it's Nick Boza. Um, He's the best player and the best defense in the league. Pretty simple as that. Um, He led the NFL in sacks, led the NFL in quarterback hits, uh, had 13 more than the next closest guy. He was tied for second in tackles for loss. He knocked down four passes and forced three fumbles. And he had an outstanding season, the centerpiece of the best defense in football. Um, I think he should be the defense player of the year. Offensive player of the year, I think it should be a no-brainer slam dunk Justin Jefferson. Um, This is like the Oscar they give to best screenplay where the MVP is best picture. Um, You've got to acknowledge just this Justin Jefferson season for what it was, even if you're making Mahomes the MVP. Uh, Minnesota didn't win 13 games because they were a solid contender. They won 13 games because they had the league's best playmaker. In Justin Jefferson, just embarrassing defenses on a week-to-week basis, despite him being the clear focal point of the Vikings' game plan. Um, we'll, we'll just look at the Vikings' four losses. Um, in three of them, Jefferson had bad statistics, so that proves how valuable he was. In the other one, he had 200-plus yards against the Lions. Um, I think this was one of the best receiver seasons in the history of the NFL, uh, and we've seen the precedent where a quarterback wins MVP, they give uh, Offensive Player of the Year to a receiver. We see, saw it with Michael Thomas. We saw it with Cooper Cup last season. I think the same thing happens this year with Justin Jefferson. Um, offensive Rookie of the Year, the three finalists, Brock Purdy, which he only played. He only started five regular season games, and he's a finalist for the Offensive Rookie of the Year. If we're going off that rationale, Brees Hall deserved to be a finalist over Brock Purdy because he played six games. I digress. Then you got two worthy candidates in Seattle running back Kenneth Walker and Jets receiver Garrett Wilson. 
I would give it to Garrett Wilson. Um, Wilson was thrown into an offense where the guys who were throwing him passes were Zach Wilson, Joe Flacco, Mike White, and Chris Strievler. And he finished with 83 catches for 1,103 yards. Uh, that's all the edge he needed to earn my vote. Um, he was the best player on that offense, in my opinion. He's only a rookie. He made some plays. He won some games for them with his playmaking. And so I really like Garrett Wilson out of the Ohio State University to take home Offensive Rookie of the Year honors. Defensive Rookie of the Year, I think it's going to be a New York Jets sweep as I think it's going to be Sauce Gardner. Um, Gardner was good enough to be a first-team All-Pro. But, I mean, NFL quarterbacks opted to test him every week. Only watch him to pass with flying colors. He led the league in passes defended and allowed just a 62.7 passer rating in coverage. Um, Sauce Gardner, he's that dude. Um, he's a he's a rookie first team All Pro, top four pick. Um, he faced the other team's best receiver week in and week out and shut them down. So he is my defensive rookie of the year, and I think the Jets sweep offensive and Defensive Rookie of the Year awards this season. The next award is AP Comeback Player of the Year, and there's some great candidates for this award. Um, Saquon Barkley, Giants running back, obviously dealt with a lot of injuries throughout his early four- or five-year career. Um, Came back this season, had an outstanding season, ran for over 1,000 yards, and led the Giants back to the playoffs for the first time since 2015. Christian McCaffrey, 49ers running back, also dealt with a lot of injuries last year in Carolina, came back and was the focal point of the 49ers offense. They didn't lose in the regular season when he was on their team. And then Geno Smith, the quarterback of the Seahawks. I would have to give the nod to Geno Smith, I think. Um, to be fair, though, I don't love the candidates for this award. Based purely off the definition, I think the comeback player of the year would be Saquon Barkley. In my opinion, the comeback player of the year should be Brian Robinson Jr., uh, the running back for the Commanders, who got shot before the season and came back this season and had a good rookie year. I think that should be the comeback player of the year, but since he wasn't in the league last year, he's not eligible. But Smith would be more of a breakthrough player of the year. Um, Smith has never been as good as he was this year. Um, he proved he could be an effective starter in the NFL after being a, um, you know, just a backup quarterback journeyman. Um, but he was the, the redemption story this year. And that's what comeback player of the year means. Uh, he went to the jets. Uh, he was predictably failed by that organization. He spent years as a much maligned backup in the football world and turned himself into a top 10 starter the moment he took the majority of the snaps again. Um, They wrote him off. He didn't write back, and I think he'll be the comeback player of the year. For coach of the year, your finalists are Brian Dable um, for the Giants, Sean McDermott of the Bills, Doug Peterson of the Jags, Kyle Shanahan for the 49ers, and Nick Sirianni of the Eagles. And I think it should be Brian Dable, slam dunk. Year one in New York, he made Daniel Jones a viable starting quarterback. And got the Giants to their first playoff win since Eli Manning won the Super Bowl in Super Bowl 46. The rest of the candidates were great coaches, but none of them made Daniel Jones' playoff game winning quarterback happen. 
So that's what gives the edge to me over Brian Dable. So that's going to do it for the NFL talk. Let's talk some NBA. Specifically, wanted to focus on um, the All-Star game because that's coming up very soon. Let's talk standings first. Give me an update on the landscape of the league, though. So in the East, it's still the Celtics who are holding off everybody else slightly as they are 36-15 and 15 this season. They... Um, are very good at home, 19 and 6. Equally as good on the road, 17 and 9. They are the number one seed in the East, playing very well. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown having outstanding seasons, um, both averaging over 25 points per game. So they're one of the best duos in the league, and that team is hungry to get back to the finals after losing last season. Then you got the Bucks at the two seed, done it mostly without Chris Middleton all year. It's been the Giannis show, but they've been outstanding at home at 20 and 5, 33 and 17. They're only two and a half back of the Celtics. 76ers are starting to play their best basketball with Joel Embiid and James Harden. Um, they find themselves only three games back of the Celtics. Got a very nice win this week over the Nuggets and Nikola Jokic. Big time win there. And the Sixers are proving that they too can be a. Le- Legitimate bona fide finals contender in the East. Then you got the Nets. They're 31 and 19. They're four and a half back of the Celtics for the one seed. I expect them to slip a little bit in the standings with Kevin Durant being out for the next couple of weeks. Um, so I expect them to take a little bit of a step back. But when they have Durant and Irving fully healthy, you know, those two dudes are still top 20 players in the league. And it's tough to beat a team of two top 20 players. Then you got the Cavs in the fifth seed at 31 and 21. They're five and a half back of the Celtics of the one seed. The best home record in the East at 21 and 5. Struggle on the road, though, at 10 and 16. Um, 31 and 21. Um, Donovan Mitchell playing at an MVP caliber level. You know, you got Darius Garland, who's also, you know, playing at an all star level, in my opinion. Not sure he will get in. But I really want to see the continued development of Evan Mobley. That is the X factor for this Cavs team. You know, you ex- you've seen Donovan Mitchell, Jared Allen, and Darius Garland sustain the level of play that we've become accustomed to from them. Last year, I think the Cavs said to themselves and why they went all in on this Mitchell trade, they said, we see Evan Mobley as having the potential to be a top 10 player in the league in the next two to three years. And we expect him to take a step forward his sophomore season in the NBA. He hasn't taken as big of a step as some would like. I think, you know, people have likened him to Chris Bosh and Kevin Garnett in year two. But he hasn't gone up to that standard. But he, if he can develop his offensive game, because that's, because defensively he's one of the top probably 15 defensive players in the league, in my opinion, just in terms of shot blocking and the way the way he impacts the game in the paint. But offensively, because Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland are so ball dominant, sometimes Mobley, it feels like to me, is forced, which this role is fine, especially for Jared Allen, is forced to be like a, a lob player. Like, you know, you know, let Mitchell and Garland create their own shot. They'll hit you on a lob. That's all they're going to do. But Mobley, you know, he has a good outside game. 
He can shoot the 15-footer. Um, he is athletic enough to, you know, stretch the floor. And for him to take that next step offensively to get to that superstar, that top 10 player in the league level that m myself and so many analysts around the NBA see his potential being, they need to be able to allow him to develop offensively without taking the ball too much out of Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell's hands because those two are dynamic offensive players as well. If you could get Mobley developed close to where I think he should be near the end of this year, the Cavs are going to have a real shot to win the East because they'll have three of the best offensive players in basketball if Mobley develops like I think he will. But that's something they got to figure out because right now in this offense, it seems like his best times offensively for Evan Mobley are when Garland and Mitchell are off the floor. But they need to learn how to mesh and play together because... That's something special there if they can get all three of those guys playing at the peak of their powers on the offensive end. So those are the top five in the East. And then six through eight, it's Miami, New York, and the Hawks. The Heat, the Knicks, and the Hawks, they're all kind of tightly bunched there. And then rounding out the playoff, um, the play-in field, I should say, are the Wizards and the Bulls with the Pacers just a half game back of the Bulls. In the West, it's there's a little bit more separation between the top and the middle. But once you get into that middle, there's not a whole lot of separation from who, the team that's in the 4 seed to the team that's in the 13 seed. But the number one team in the West, they've been it all season long. 22-4 um, and four at home, it's the Denver Nuggets. They're 34-16. and 16. Nikola Jokic playing at an MVP level. Um Jamal Murray getting back into an all-star form, potentially. Uh, averaging 18 points a game, shooting the ball well. You got some nice role pieces like Aaron Gordon, who could be an all-star this year, averaging 16 points per game. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, um, some other of the, the role players down there in Denver. They're well coached by Mike Malone. And the Nuggets, I think the Nuggets could win the finals. I really do. And I know you might think that's a stretch, but... As good as the East is, I think the Nuggets can match up pretty well with any of those top five teams in the East. Then you got the Grizzlies at the two seed. They are 32-18, and 18, two games back of the Nuggets. They went on a pretty lengthy losing streak recently, but snapped it as well. They're, they had the best home record in the NBA at 21-3, so they're a team to keep an eye on as well. Then you got the Kings, who perhaps have been the most surprising, perhaps the best story in basketball in the NBA this season. They're 28 and 21, seven games above 500, five and a half back of that one seed. They haven't made the playoffs since 2003, I think. Longest playoff drought in basketball. And I think they're poised to make the playoffs this season. So good for the Kings. Mike Brown's got that team playing at a high level. DeMontis Sabonis is going to be an all star. A lot to be excited about for the Beam team, the Kings. Talked about them earlier this year, how excited I was about. They're spacing offensively and how good of a job they were doing on that end of the floor. And it's still paying off as they find themselves top three seed in the West, which nobody, and you you can lie all you want, nobody predicted that coming in, into the season. Four, five, six, you've got the Clippers, Warriors, and Mavericks. Warriors playing better as of late. They won their last three. Um, Clippers, you know, when they get Paul George and Kawhi healthy, they're as tough to beat as anybody. 
And then the Mavericks, I feel like it's Luka or nothing. And I feel like it'll continue to be that. And I expect them to be near that 6, 7, 8 range in the West. Just because he doesn't have a lot of help. Um, and then you got the Suns in the seven seed. Still missing Devin Booker. Still struggling a little bit. But once they get him back, it's going to be a similar story like the Clippers. Once they get Kawhi and George back to being fully healthy. Then 8, 9, 10, you got the Pelicans, Timberwolves, and Jazz rounding out the playing teams. But the Thunder, Trailblazers, and Lakers all within two and a half games of that last playing spot currently held by the Utah Jazz. So that's what the NBA landscape's looking like. Let's take a look at the all-star rosters. So the starters were announced last week. The reserves will be announced tonight. I will give you my picks who I think should be all-star reserves addition with the starters. In addition to the starters, I should say. Let's start with the starters. In the East, the captain who received the most votes is Giannis Antetokounmpo, seven-time All-Star, two-time MVP, the All-Star MVP last season. No, 2021, excuse me. He's averaging 32 points per game, five assists, 12 rebounds. He was the top vote-getter in the Eastern Conference. The other starters in the Eastern Conference are Kevin Durant, uh, 13-time All-Star, two-time All-Star MVP, Averaged 30, he's averaging 30 points, 5 assists, 7 rebounds. His teammate Kyrie Irving also in the starting lineup. 27 points a game this season for Kyrie. 8-time All-Star, 2014 All-Star MVP, 3-time All-NBA. Then you got Donovan Mitchell from the Cavaliers making his first All-Star start. The 4-time All-Star is averaging 28 points per game. And Jason Tatum rounds out the All-Star starters in the Eastern Conference. In the Western Conference, the captain is none other than the king, LeBron James. 19-time uh, All-Star, 3-time All-Star MVP. Is averaging 30 points, 7 rebounds, and 9... Uh, seven, 30 points, 7 assists, and 9 rebounds in his age 38 season. And then his... The rest of the starters in the West look like this. Steph Curry... No surprises there. Luka Doncic, no surprise there. Nikola Jokic, once again, no surprises. The only surprise, in my opinion, for both teams in their starting lineups is Zion Williamson. Not because Zion on the Pelicans isn't having a great season, but it's because he's only played 29 games. But I stand by. I stand down. I think, you know, he probably would have been an all-star either way. But those are the starters. Not necessarily what team they're going to be on. You know, they've done Team Giannis, Team LeBron. Team KD, Team LeBron, whatever it's been the last, you know, ever since that format changed. But instead of picking the teams, like, um, in a draft that's televised, they're going to do the draft the day of the All-Star game. So I think that's going to be interesting. But let's take a look at who I think should be the All-Star Reserve starting in the Eastern Conference. I will go down the list. There are a lot of All-Star players that are, that are deserving of recognition in the East, but there's only seven reserve spots available. So here are who I would pick. I would pick Joel Embiid of the 76ers. Embiid is a slam dunk no-brainer in my opinion. Um, he is the best big man in the Eastern Conference for sure. Um, he's second in the league in scoring. Um, Embiid will be a all-star. That's a slam dunk pick. Trey Young for the Hawks, I think, is a good pick, too. Um, James Harden would be one of my picks, too. 
Pascal Siakam for the Raptors, uh, Julius Randle on the Knicks, Tyrese Hal Burton on the Pacers, and Jalen Brown on the Celtics would round out my Eastern Conference reserves. Those are who I think should get the nods. Once again, that's Embiid, Trey Young, James Harden, Pascal Siakam, Julius Randle, Tyrese Hal Burton, and Jalen Brown. In the West, I think DeMontis Sabonis is a slam dunk. Mentioned his name a little bit earlier. Um, with the Kings, the amount of success they're having, he has been their best player. That should be a no-brainer. John Morant should also be a no-brainer. The best player in the second team in the West. Didn't get the nod to start, but I think he will be an all-star starter nonetheless. Shea Gilgis-Alexander should also be a lock. Averaging close to 30 points a game. He's an outstanding young player for the Thunder. He's been one of my favorite players to watch this season. Lowry Markinen, I think absolutely should be an all-star for the Utah Jazz. He's averaging 26 points per game after a breakout season. Um, he's been outstanding for the Jazz, and I think he should be, get the all-star nod. Then I will probably say Damian Lillard and De'Aaron Fox for the other two guard spots. And then Anthony Davis rounding out my all-star team in the Western Conference. Those do get announced tonight, so we will see how, how well I do. Some players that I would say just missed the cut in the Eastern Conference would be Jimmy Butler, um, Jalen Brunson, Kyle Kuzma, DeMar DeRozan, Drew Holiday. In the West, the players that just missed the cut, in my opinion, are Paul George, Jaron Jackson, uh, CJ McCollum, and Anthony Edwards would be the players that I think just on the outside looking in. All right, let's end with some bracketology. Um, as you know, we are, I believe, seven or six weeks away from having a bracket for the NCAA tournament, the March Madness tournament. And we're getting into the, th in the swing of things here for bracketology. Um, teams that are for sure top four seeds right now, I would say. So these teams will be theoretically your sweet 16 based off seeding. Right now. So these are going to be the one through four seeds. The slam dunk number one overall seed is the unanimous AP number one team in the country right now. That is the Purdue Boilermakers. They have the Naismith player of the year in Zach Eady. He is outstanding. He's got Purdue playing at a high level. Then I would go Alabama, Houston, Tennessee for the remaining number one seeds. All three of those teams are having great seasons. They are dangerous too. Number two seeds, I would have Kansas, who's struggled a little bit lately, but they got off to a great start this season. They're, you know, they're well coached by Bill Self, obviously. Coming off a national title, they will be okay. Then I would have Arizona and UCLA out of the Pac-12. UCLA had a lengthy winning streak snapped recently. Um, and Texas got a big win over Baylor last night. They would be my last two seed as well. Three seeds, I would have Kansas State, Virginia, Iowa State and Gonzaga. And then the four seeds would be Marquette, TCU, Baylor, and Xavier at this current juncture. Some teams that are on the bubble to keep an eye on. If you want, you know, bubble, the bubble is one of the best, you know, dramatic um, pieces of college basketball. It's the bubble. As, um, you know, the last four in, the last, first four out, that sort of thing. 
Teams that I would say are, you know, the last eight in maybe. So, like, those eight teams on the bubble that I would lean towards getting into the tournament. And this is um, similar to and based off of Bracketology with Joe Lenardi of ESPN, but some other considerations I have that differ from Mr. Lenardi's analysis too. But these last eight teams that get in, I think, are Boise State, Maryland, Memphis, Pittsburgh, Penn State, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Texas A&M are those last eight teams on the bubble that I think get in. The, the first eight teams that I think will be out are Oklahoma, Nevada, Oklahoma State, Wisconsin, Arizona State, Ohio State, Seton Hall, and Utah State. Those are the teams on the bubble that if you want, you know, some intrigue before you get watching your before you get to fill out your bracket in the at the end of the regular season here, watch some of those bubble teams that I just mentioned because they are the teams that have everything to play for in front of them in the rest of the regular season. They got to build their resume, they got to get some quality net wins, uh some quadrant 1 wins, that sort of thing to build their resume if they don't win their conference tournament. But I would have Purdue at the number one overall seed right now. They're running away with the number one overall seed. They are 21-1. and one. Um, They've been outstanding this season. Zach Eady, player of the year. They've been great. And Kent State, my, my alma mater, uh, the Golden Flashes, they are 17-4 and four right now. First in the MAC. They're 7-1 and one in the MAC right now, tied with Akron atop the conference. They right now, according to Joe Lonardi, would be a 12 seed. So exciting time for Kent State basketball. Second longest home win streak in the country behind UCLA. So, you know, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty in the college basketball season. A lot of exciting things to happen. But if I had to give you a way-too-early Final Four, um, I would put Purdue in there for now. I'd probably go Purdue-UCLA. Um... Tennessee, and I would probably go Houston, Purdue, UCLA, Tennessee, and Houston, just based off who I think are the best four teams in the country. Not necessarily the best seeded teams, but the best four overall teams. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast. On Instagram at Jote Sports Pod. That's at J O T Sports Pod. And be sure to listen to next week's show. Going to be a big Super Bowl preview. We'll try to get an interview on the show as well to, uh, you know, get another opinion on the big game, Super Bowl 57. Until then, hope you guys have a great week. I've been Jack Burney, signing off.